0: Welcome to Effortless Swimming, the podcast for swimmers, triathletes, and coaches. Join Australian swim coach, Bretton Ford, as he reveals the latest techniques and information to improve your swimming. Let's dive right in.
1: Welcome to the Effortless Swimming podcast. My guest today is Eric Nielsen, and uh, Eric came recommended from one of our last guests, uh, Carlin Pipes, who was on the, the podcast. Eric, welcome to the podcast.
0: Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. And, uh, I should
1: say good morning uh, down in Australia yeah, we finally got to uh every time that I have a guest on from overseas, we somehow managed to get the time wrong or uh, we, we managed to um, have to set a second date so um, for whatever reason that's it, it just happens but uh, i 'm glad we could actually catch up and and do this podcast because uh, after reading through a lot of the articles that you 've you 've written and um, and based on recommendations from from i 'm uh, excited to to explore some of these. Uh, topics with you. And I mean, you started, you're a triathlon coach and you didn't originally start as a, a triathlon coach. So can you uh, let people know basically what you did start off after college and and how you got into triathlon coaching?
0: Yeah, sure. <clears throat> um, after upon graduating uh, university, I was in the corporate world for a year and uh, <clears throat> realized that that wasn't my true calling. Uh, I was, had become active in um, triathlon in college uh, here in the States in the, in the mid-80s and uh, in sport in general and between triathlon and uh, master's swimming. And I just, after a year in the corporate world, I figured, you know, I'm just, I'm young, I'm just me taking care of myself. If I'm going to make a career change, now's the time to do it. So uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, be able to start coaching uh, a master's group um, in San Diego, California, back in 1991. And that began my shift from uh, the, the corporate to more of the, the health and wellness uh,
1: field. And I've never looked back since. Do you think it's something you, you would have done later in life had you not, you know, been young, first year out of college? It's, I guess it's a lot easier to make those changes. But could you see yourself making that change, say, five years ago?
0: Yeah. I mean, if, if I hadn't, I, I, I would say I'm, I'm definitely in my calling, um, coaching and working with, um, adult athletes as well as youth from time to time. It's, uh, it's such a rewarding, um, it's a, such a rewarding job for sure. I, I, I've really found my niche. I'm so lucky.
1: Mm. I think it's it's such a hard thing to do is make a a big change like a, a career change and especially if it's it, it might be something you're called to but you know making that making that leap uh, can be very daunting and and you know it may not pay as well as if you're working in in corporate America or Wall Street whatever it might be but uh you know if you look back on the last 10 20 years and um, and you're not fulfilled with what you're doing uh, then you know you think well does does the matter does the money really matter it's it's more about that uh fulfillment that you get from from doing the job and i think as a coach myself i just get i really look forward to working closer with people and helping them get more out of themselves and you know the 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 money really you know doesn't um doesn't play a huge part of that it's just so fulfilling compared to um you know some other jobs i've had i, I I'd, I'd say um <clears throat> yeah it's just that uh, it's very fulfilling
0: yeah, there's
1: just
0: you know, and uh, and working with the adult athlete, you know, it's um, it, it's it has its own challenges for sure. You know, as adults, the, the biggest thing I've noticed uh, between that and kids is adults we know pain and we know fear and the consequences of those. Whereas, you know, the, the the young athlete, they're kind of still feeling those things out. Um, but yeah, it's you know, whether you start when you're in your twenties or you know, I have some people that finally find exercise in their sixties, it's never too late to start. So, um, you know, working with the adult masters age athlete is just, uh, yeah, there's, it's never
1: dull. It's never the same. That's for sure. Yeah. And that's, yeah, it's a huge, um, uh, like, you know, when people start later in life, <laughs> I, I've i run a lot of swimming clinics and, um, quite often I'll have people who have only started swimming in the last year and they might be 50 odd years old but they fall in love with it and they get addicted to the feeling of, of having a good session or just a really enjoyable swim and they they kind of wake, wake up to that that feeling and they can't believe that they, it's something that they've only just discovered at, at 50 years of age so it's um and, and I, I prefer like, I really enjoy working with with adults for, for that reason, just helping them uh, discover how enjoyable swim, swimming or uh, you know exercise can be, and you know when you have someone who's so so new to the sport as an adult, there's a lot for them to to learn. And if you can um, if you can just help them understand the fundamentals and the basics, and help them build from there, then they really start to make those discoveries themselves. So, um, kind of on that topic, what's what's your process of working with? Uh, an athlete who comes to you. So someone who might've been in the sport for a while, um, but they're new to having you as the coach, what sort of things would you look at uh, with them? And what sort of things would you look to plan out?
0: Yeah. So we'll just take the swimmer, for example, you know, so often, and you've probably seen this, you have an athlete that's, you know, phenomenal and has a great cardio base and on land, whether it be cycling or running or any land-based activity, but you put them in the pool and then, twenty five meters they're absolutely just spent um, you know so yeah. you know right off the bat you know you have to you know, I prefer to look at what's what's an athlete doing with their air you know how, how are they breathing you know and what's their level of comfort uh, in the water um, It's surprising how many adults have uh, just a fear for water forget trying to actually swim, but uh, just just a fear of the water so you know, right off the bat I want to see are they comfortable in their environment and what's their relationship with breathing? Because oftentimes if an athlete's too worried about air, it really doesn't matter what kind of coach you are. It's hard to work on technique for them because they're too worried about their next breath. Um, So really identifying that right up front is, is huge. And then from there we can start, you know, building on the various skill sets and looking at, you know, looking at big ticket items that, you know, cause, uh, a swimmer to maybe not swim as well as, as they can
1: yeah absolutely and uh sometimes i like to also explore like what are their beliefs about swimming so once you've got the breathing mm-hmm. under control you can get them relaxed a lot of times uh let's say someone's swam for two years they might have these fundamental beliefs of what you should be doing in a stroke for example, okay. a lot of uh, a lot of times people will think that they need to um, reach as far forward as possible when they're swimming, and while you do need need that reach, if you're overreaching before you actually enter the water, a lot of times they're, they're pressing down at the front, which is causing them to basically have no catch or pull. So, just some sort of fundamental beliefs like that can be causing them to um, to just not get get the most out of their stroke. So. Um, if I'm doing a video analysis with someone and it looks like they might be reaching too far forward or their like stroke rate's really slow because they, they think they need to swim um, like how they picture a, a traditional swimmer like Ian Thorpe sort of uh, stroke, then it's about asking them what, what their beliefs are with that and then you know showing them that there is a, a different way. Um, and so, I mean, you work with a lot of triathletes as well. So, um, do you look at what they've done in the past in terms of their uh, their training, and then um, then look at it a different way of going forward? So, what? How do you sort of um, sure. look at that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great
0: question, and um, there's definitely um, there's definitely different ways to swim fast. You know, you look at um, you got to look at body type. You know, or, or are you dealing with a, a tall, long, lanky? Or are we dealing, you know, short? little more compact um, you know athlete you know generally generally speaking men have a little more upper body strength than than women you know so generally speaking we find men don't have to have quite the turnover of a female athlete all things being equal to you know move at relatively similar speeds so um, you know we'll see a higher turnover with female athletes sometime not to say that men don't need to work on turnover but you know that's that's one thing we definitely see and then you know, it's, I think it's important you kind of identify what the athletes limiters are, you know, once we're past breathing, you know, look at the biomechanics, you know, what are they doing up top? Are they crossing center line is a big, that's a biggie, you mm-hmm. know, um, for sure. I'd say, regardless of gender, people have a tendency to want to have their hands go across their bodies. And we've all seen people move down the pool. They look somewhat serpentine or snake Um, So that's an easy tell, um, you know, with that. And then, um, you know, with the master's athlete in particular, the triathletes, some of them come to the sport and they just don't have the upper body range of motion through their, their shoulder girdles. So, um, to have them try to emulate say a Thorpe type stroke or a Phelps type stroke where those, those swimmers have some, you know, some amazing range of motion, you know, for an adult athlete, that's just unrealistic. So you might have to make some slight modifications in terms of whilst, you know, trying to get a a high elbow and catch the water. Um, they might have to wait a little longer in the stroke until they're their, whatever their range of motion allows before they can, you know, apply the proper force to accelerate through the stroke. So you got to look at the body type and, and what's, what's currently available for them and then try to design or, and give them stroke tips to help um, them achieve the best results given, you know, current level of fitness. And I'd say, you know, biomechanical limitations, uh, that's what we see and then you know with the aging masters athlete if they haven't been as active you know the things just have to change you have to make some stroke modifications um you know for sure um you know within that
1: mm. and and you mentioned uh turnover and especially for for female athletes that's a that's a big one is a lot of times yes. yeah the the athletes that i work with at, at clinics their turnover is too slow and you know, it, it will take a number of months for them to sometimes build that up and get comfortable with it. But mm-hmm. it's just, it's really free speed there a lot of times. If, you know, if your stroke rate's under 60 strokes a minute, then like yeah. my rule of thumb is no one should be under 60 strokes a minute when they're racing. Uh, but most people should be relatively higher than that. Um, but So what are some of your strategies to help athletes get comfortable with a faster turnover and sure. get them, uh, yeah. get them sort of finding that balance of stroke length and stroke rate?
0: Yeah, no, great question. It's, uh, you know, I, I do, um, <clears throat> one of the drills we do, it's, we just call them crazy eights and it's just, you push off the wall and you go eight strokes as fast as you can. And, and you're not overly concerned with best mechanical form. You're just trying to get the athlete to you know, break down some of those neuromuscular barriers and just get them to move their fat in their arms as fast as possible for eight strokes. And it's, um, it's, a it's easy to do in the sense of, from a mental standpoint, anybody, well, I can do eight strokes fast, right. <laughs> um, you know, so you start with that. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, with you, uh, I call it, um, you see some summers that what I call a mono speed pull. So like from start to finish, there's no change in, and hand speed or any kind of acceleration in the stroke mm. at all—it's just kind of one, one continuous, not monotonous speed. So um, the crazy eights I find not only help the turnover, just breaking down those pathways of just physical turnover, but they help the athlete learn to generate some hand speed. Um, I do those a lot as uh, secondary warm-up sets or parts of main sets. Um, that's one thing for sure. You know, kind of, you know, from the multi-sport athlete, you put it in the language I understand. If they've probably done overspin on the bike, right, to just teach the legs to move efficiently, we have to teach some of those same types of things in the water. So then when you settle into your normal stroke rate, it feels you're not limited by it by any means. Um, so that's probably one of my
1: favorite drills for that. Um, that's an int- uh, That's a really good point you brought up about the, the mono speed, so the constant hand speed. Of, yeah. uh, of newer swimmers, and that's something that really can limit someone from finding a good rhythm in their stroke and, and finding that point where swimming becomes a lot easier. So, if, yeah. so for those listening, what we kind of mean by that is, you know, the, the hand's going to travel quicker over the top in the recovery and then as you're sort of reaching forward and just about to start the catch it's going to be a little bit slower Uh, and then you're going to sort of build the acceleration once you're going through your your catch and pull whereas um, the swimmers who tend to be on the sort of slower side of things it's just they've got no change in speed with that hand it's just constantly ticking over um so like one of the one of the really key Things that I try and get my swimmers to do is make sure that they enter their hand with a bit of force and, and purpose out in front because that's when you get that nice transfer of momentum and energy from over the top in the recovery and driving that in front of the shoulder and into the water. Uh, that's yeah. And that's you know, a big difference you see from the fastest swimmers to the slow swimmers is they get, they get that nice transfer of momentum and energy um, by driving the hand in with a bit of force as opposed to being really soft and gentle out the front
0: you know it's um it reminds me of another drill we do you know you watch water polo players swim and you just head up water polo drill for a few strokes it it, it builds on what you said about an uh, you know an aggressive or i say an assertive hand entry you know to swim with your head up you have to be assertive getting your hand in and and get in the water and you have to be a uh, assertive with the acceleration of the hand, you know, through the, the pull. Otherwise your head can't stay up. Mm. Um, so that's another great drill just to help an athlete, you know, learn some of those skills. Um, and, you know, mono speed it, it's, it's, I think a lot of it's strength related. You know, if you have an athlete male or female, that doesn't have a lot of upper body strength. Maybe take, you know, someone that comes into sport into the water with a run background, you know, oftentimes runners don't have, a lot of upper body strength, regardless of gender. So they just, they don't have the strength to accelerate the hands, um, you know, through the stroke and through the recovery. Um, sometimes, you know, I get the athletes, you know, we're talking more, you know, shifting with the, you know, the distance per stroke thing. And, um, you see, that's where they lose speed. They, they get to the little pause or the moment up top in the stroke, but that sometimes correlates with the opposite, opposing hand and arm kind of pausing at the back mm. which is what you don't want you want to you know carry that momentum through and around back up to the front so um you know that that can be a a hang up for some people but uh you know and you're seeing like with ITU races and Olympic races I mean those athletes they're male and female they are ticking those arms over um there no no one's got a a long lopy stroke cuz it's it's open water it's different than a pool stroke uh, for mm. sure
1: yeah, I mean, their stroke rate. So many of many of them are up around you know, eighty plus strokes a minute. Some of them up around the the nineties, and that's for a, an Olympic distance race. And mm-hmm. while that's not going to be possible for people who haven't who haven't swum that much and haven't got the experience, but you know, if, if you look at that and you go, well, okay, if these guys are doing ninety strokes a minute, then I shouldn't be down at at fifty. It's just it's too slow. Um, and I mean, there there are exceptions to the. The fast turnover, if you look at the 10K marathon swim at the Olympics, the, uh, one of the guys who was leading, Jared Port, the Aussie guy, he was out in front for the first eight or nine Ks. He has quite a slow turnover, but he's just got a lot of upper body strength and his stroke was, was suited to that slower rating. Um, but you know that's really an, ex- an exception. A lot of the other guys, uh, the pure swimmers, I mean, yeah, they still had a, a faster rating. And, and if you watch them at the end, did you see that race, the 10K marathon swim? No, I
0: heard about it though. Quite, quite
1: the race. Oh, it was it was awesome. And there's there was a good dozen guys going for you know the last 400 meters. A good dozen guys going together, and their turnover was up around 90 to 100 strokes a minute towards um, towards the end there for the last couple of, couple hundred meters, where they just had to ramp it up. So um, yeah, even as as a, as a, a pure, some of those guys um, know how to get their stroke rates up. Um, another thing you, you mentioned before was was with strength um i mean we i've worked with an athlete who is um he's looking to uh get a medal in the uh the, the para games and he's one of his big things is he's strong on the bike strong in the run but he's never been a great swimmer and um one of the coaches he's been working with is a guy johnny van wiss he's um, done the arch to arc triathlon. He holds the, the world record for that over in, in England and France. And he, what he got him to do was swim with uh, pool boy for every session because this triathlete's races is all in a, in a wetsuit. So he, he said, every session, I want you to swim with a pool boy. And that's just brought his strength right up. So the last 6 to 12 months, his, his swim times have come down pretty significantly um, as a result of just using a pool boy. And building up strength that way so for a lot of people who do have that run background or they don't have the upper body strength sometimes that's what you need to do is just build it by taking the legs out of it especially if you're racing with a a wetsuit because it simulates that pretty well when you're wearing a pool boy
0: oh yeah no doubt it's uh you use a buoy and then as the athlete gains some strength you add a little bit of paddles so you got more load then you can throw an ankle strap on and that that can be a telling sign if the core is not engaged because they start wiggling all around the place when you put the ankle strap on. Um, but yeah, for sure, pulling you got to overload the the muscles. I, I'd say you know it, it once a week for sure for pretty much any athlete. You know, somebody that maybe has some more skill or maybe is getting more than three touches a week could even benefit from a second session that's just designed to to increase you know muscular force and 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 recruiting more muscles uh for sure for um the pulling you know and you know triathlon let's face it if it's wetsuit legal it's with you know the pool is about the closest you can get to it and you know your body's floating like a cork I i I tell my stronger guys just just grip it and rip it you know (laughs) and 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 turn it over as best you can because um but yeah i think athletes definitely can benefit from pulling sets and, you know, as long up, up into the distance, you know, the distance of the race, you know, whether it be Olympic or a half, um, Ironman distance, you know, easy to pull sets a working up to 2k or 2,400, you know, 2.4, you know, k. I mean, I wouldn't recommend anybody pulling an Ironman length kind of set. That might be a bit much, but, um, I think most athletes can easily progress to 1500 or, 2000, you know, pulling just a little bit of time and, you know, work up with the buoy and then maybe add some paddles or blend, maybe go, you know, six or 800 with the buoy on. And then maybe you do a little bit of paddles and, you know, mix it up um, for sure. But I think at least once a week, a good, strong pull set has a lot of merit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if you don't, if you don't love swimming, if you're a triathlete, you don't love swimming, but you do like swimming with a pool boy or paddles on, <laughs> you know, if that gets you to the pool, Go for it. Right. Yeah, you know, it's um, uh, a lot, yeah. That's I hear that a lot. Is I don't enjoy the swim yeah, as a, as a triathlete, but they can swim all day with a pool boy, and they they really do start to enjoy it with that. So there's nothing wrong with uh, with using that, especially if it gets you to the pool to to do your sessions. And I, I find as well that the type of paddle you've got is important. I, I see a lot of swimmers with either paddles that have got too much uh, bend or curvature in them. So some of the um, some of the finished paddles uh, are okay, but uh, I like just the simple, plain, flat ones, whether it's finger paddles or, or the full-hand ones. Uh, mm-hmm. The brand that I love is uh, Engine, which is an Australian swim band, uh, brand. They've got some really good paddles that I recommend to um, all my Australian athletes, uh, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of other uh, good brands out there that just have the simple, flat paddles, and uh, that's when you can really start to build strength because if, if they've got too much curvature, it can sometimes throw your stroke out a little bit, especially some of those like speedo curved ones with the um, concave in them. I find they're terrible for your shoulders and uh, they just sort of change your stroke a little too much. So the simpler, the better, I think, when it comes to paddles.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I would, I would lean along some of those same lines. And, you know, I guess for folks listening out there, you know, when you put a pull buoy in, there's there's three distinct things I think that help the athlete um, number one um, and two of them are drag related number one when the pool buoys in it tapers the body you know th- this below the waist because now you're having to squeeze the buoy so you have no drag from a horizontal standpoint number two the buoy is gonna float your bum up so now you just reduced frontal drag if you not you have a better line in the water and I think that the third part that I think people forget um, is you know, largest muscles, larger muscles use more oxygen. So now you've taken your legs out of the equation. So now your bigger muscle groups are getting a little breaks. So you've got more oxygenated blood in the upper body and torso to propel yourself forward. So you, with the buoy, you really can create an upper body fatigue, you know, before without the buoy that you might be limited by your wind because engaging the legs more, more fatigue you're not able to really max out the taxing in the upper body um mm. for
1: sure especially if, if you've had a big weekend on the bike and running right and your legs are heavy they're just it doesn't matter who you are like, i think your legs are going to 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 sink a little bit more after a big weekend of training on the legs yeah so it's um i mean i i started um started doing triathlons last season and i'd never done that much running or, or riding before and on monday i'd get to the pool and my legs would just sit so much lower than what I was used to and I, I finally understood why triathletes love using a pool boy because they're, yeah they're just legs are heavy and uh yeah even um even with 20 odd years of uh of serene experience I, I still found that my stroke was was affected by it hmm. so it was uh, yeah I found that interesting um and you became I became a believer I did <laughs> that's right that's right Well when I first started coaching I was against a lot of use of the, the pool boy, and that 's just because I came from that swimming background and you know swimming with the pool boy was cheating in um, from what I was sort of um, taught to believe but you know, as you coach more athletes, you get more experience and um, you work with a different range of of people uh, I you know it became obvious that um, that it 's actually a, a good thing to use, so I think as a coach you 've got to be open to new ideas and then you know you test out those ideas with your athletes, and if they work, stick with them. If they don't, um, then then you can leave them. But uh, yeah, there's nothing worse than than um, you know, having a coach who's closed minded to to new ideas. So I think um, that's why I love doing this podcast. I get to meet a lot of great coaches like yourself and and uh, the numerous other coaches I've I've had on. I get so many different ideas that I I use with my athletes that way. So it's um, it's good to. Be able to, to speak with so many different people because they have a lot of um, different ideas and different ways to achieve things, like you were talking about with the you know the stroke rate and that sort of stuff. Um, you wrote an article about working with kids and how you get them to buy into the work and and the details of a session. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, you know, it's um, working with kids is great. You know, I just before the podcast today, I come back from working with some middle school runners, and uh, you know. I, that age bracket, 11, 12, up to about 14. It's, um, they're so, they're so, uh, moldable or, or pliable. They're just, they're big sponges of, of learning, you know, and, um, you know, keeping it fun is huge because at that age, kids, they they still are kids. They want to play. And, and I I think one of the keys getting them to buy in is knowing that at some point in the practice, they're going to, get to be kids and get to, to play a little bit and have some fun within this session. And then the other part, um, is, you know, getting them to, to do work, but they don't think they're doing work, you know, through the play, you know, we might do a, a series of games and skills and drills that are really working on some great motor skill movements, you know, but they're playing a game. So they think that they're, Oh, we're get to play. We're not really doing work, but really they are doing the work. You know, and in terms of the buy in, you know, it's um, I'm really fortunate with the group I work with that they're so supportive of each other. And, you know, we really try to strive, especially with our, our be grade eight here. So they're grade six, seven, eight. The, the eighth graders really, you know, taking a sixth grader under their wing and and helping them in that first year when they made their transition from what we call elementary school to the middle school years and just helping them, you know, work work on some of the drill sequences that we might do um, because when the kids get it from their peers, even though they might be a couple of years older age wise, I think it even has more, um, more staying power than maybe coming from the coaches and, and our, you know, us and, and the volunteers that help out there. Um, when it comes from their, their classmates, that's, that's when you see the buy-in, you know, they're, they're really, they're helping each other um, achieve, achieve greatness, you know. For, within themselves and as a team
1: yeah absolutely and with this that sort of buddies system when kids of that age and even adults as well but when kids of that age get to become the the leader and the teacher not only helps them learn more you know about the thing that they're teaching but just the confidence that comes from that and how that can Work well for them later in life, where when they start you know, start working and when they start taking leadership roles in school and college and that sort of thing, you know, just um, being being in that position where they're looked up to and they feel like they've got uh, a lot of responsibility, and you know that that's what drives a lot of confidence. And I see that from a lot of the best coaches of of younger kids is is they're not afraid to give do that buddy system and let the, the younger kids learn from the older kids. And, um, and that creates a lot of buy-in from, from both ends there because if you feel like you're, you have a place in the team because you're teaching some of the other students there, then, uh, then it, it helps them stay involved and uh, stay interested in the sport because not everyone's going to be the, the fastest swimmer or the fastest triathlete. But yeah, if, if you feel like you have a place in, in the team and from, from teaching, that, uh, that can help you stay in the sport for a lot longer.
0: Yeah, no, no question. Um, and you know, it's, I don't know if you saw have the chance to work with youth as well as adults, but, um, I think the two really help me coach the best because I'll, I'll take, say I've had a session or two with, you know, the kids for a while and it'll remind me of some things I could do with the adults and then vice versa. Some things I might be doing, you know, with the, the master's group, like, Oh, maybe I'll try this with the kids kind of thing. So for me, it, the, the two complement each other. I, I think it's really, um, it's really helpful in that, in that respect. Yeah. Uh, and the kids, they have so much, God, they got so much flipping energy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're just, uh, they want to go, 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 go. And, and, um, I think another thing that helps them with the buy-in, um, cause you'll see a, a young athlete in a lot of sports, they just, you know, kids—they just go hard. They go until they blow, and then they go from flat out, full gas to, you know, walking or almost—you know—seems like stopping in a very short amount of time. And uh, I've seen the ones, at least with the middle, you know, with with the cross country running. Once they understand this, learning how to pace their their effort a little bit better, then you then and they start to understand that, and then and then they feel it that first time where it's like, if I just go out a little bit easier. Man, I'm just a beast the rest of the way, and I have a good strong finish. Boy, that really helps the buy-in there too. Once they understand, you know, a little bit of pacing. Um, you know, you never want to, you never want to dull the blade, the speed blade. I mean, speed is everything. You know, we always endurance is easy to get as we we just got to grow up. But you know, it's uh, the, the buy-in. I think goes to a new level when they have that positive experience of just proper pacing. You know, regardless of what the Maybe a place might be at the event, but you know, I I try to tell them learn how to pace, and then you know, let's say you're running five thirty k's, um, but you pace it well. So if you know how to pace, then you get more fit. Pretty soon, you'll pace a race really well, and you're running five minute k's or four fifty a k mm-hmm. because you know how to pace, and then then that they get so excited, almost addicted to pacing properly. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point, and I I do a lot of that with the triathletes that I coach is just teaching them how to to pace their swim. So I mean, you can do you can do step tests where it might be seven two hundreds where you're progressively getting faster. A simple 100. one that I like to do is um, like 12 100s where we'll go build one to four, so four, eight, and twelve. They're the, the fastest ones, and you've got to take off five seconds each time, and that's that can be a very hard thing for people to to do is go that first one very slow let's say it's a 140 uh, and then they've got to take off five seconds each time so they go one tw- uh, 135 130 and the last one's 125 and we we'll repeat that another two times most times people will go out too fast so they might go 130 and then they only drop five seconds across the four 100s so just sh- being able to teach them that, that kind of pacing and have them understand the effort level required to hit those different paces helps them so much in a race because one of the biggest things I get when people come to our swimming clinics is they say I've only got one pace you know we, we get them to do the 50 metres that we film them of to at race pace and they always laugh and say oh it doesn't really matter I've only got one pace anyway so just to teach them that pacing is, uh, is so important for racing yeah uh, it's yeah, pacing
0: is—it's hard, you know. It, and still, you've probably seen there's still some athletes that um, can have good result where they, I call it, they they kind of kind of come out of the gate pretty hot, you know. They kind of take it from the front, then they're able to settle and not fade. Um, some athletes can do that, you know. They're just set up that way. Other athletes, it, it not not good. They they go out too fast, and then it's like all they do is just you know, they just suffer and, mm. and slow down. Um, you know, it's, you know, and I think, um, it's so great. You've had so many other people already on, on the podcast and, you know, broadening, you know, your, uh, your, your own coaching and, and, and philosophy it's, um, and that's what the good, I think, honestly, that's what separates good coaches from great coaches. You know, the, the, uh, what I would call a great coach has the ability to pull from their tool bag of of whether it be antidotes verbally or teaching demonstrations to try to create um, the best environment for the athlete and set them up for the highest you know probability for success you know helping that athlete determine the right combination of stroke rate and stroke length um, you know for the desired distance you know i mean it's um i think we had a, a stint here possibly in the states where we got kind of maybe hung up too much with uh, distance per stroke and you know, yeah, if it took 12 strokes to get across the pool, but if it took you too long, the whole point is to go as fast as you can. Right. So mm. fi- find that best combination of sustainable stroke rate and length that allows you to get from point A to point B the fastest for whatever the desired, um, you know, whatever the desired distance is that really, that is the key. Mm.
1: And that, that's what I think being, being a coach is about is developing you're growing that tool kit that you can draw from. Yeah. Different things work with different swimmers and you might be working on stroke rate with someone and you might take them through an exercise and it may not click for them. But you know if you've got two or three other different Different uh, ways to go about it with them, then you know that there's a good chance at least one of those will will work with them because people work differently. Whether they're visual learners or um, or you know they prefer to be to be told something, whatever it might be, it's everyone's different. So as a coach, you want this really big toolkit to draw from, and that's that's what I've found over the last ten was it ten eleven years I've been coaching is I've got so much more. Uh, confidence as a coach, as I've as I've grown that that toolkit, and I know that I've just spoken with so many coaches, and I've been able to to borrow so many things that they've they've taught me that that I know there's a 99 percent chance I've got a solution for whatever the, the swimmers you know the problem they're having. So that's uh, that's that's what I really think it's it's about. And kind of on one of those uh, those things with uh, with tools is you you wrote an article about using snorkels and, and how you go about using snorkels with your athletes. So what kind of things do you like to use the snorkels for in training? Well,
0: um, a couple things, you know, right off the bat, number one, you know, breathing air is always readily available with the snorkel, assuming you're, you're not, uh, <laughs> the snorkel is not going underwater and you've got a good seal at the mouth. But so you, you take breathing or at least the need to turn one's head to breathe, which can cause a swimmer to have some asymmetry right off the bat. You know, breathing strokes are asymmetrical. And oftentimes that's where you see some really gross motor skill errors with an athlete. So just just the snorkel alone allows for air to be available. So now the athlete can work on their stroke. Um, You know, body position in line, you know, snorkel is fantastic uh, for that. And actually doing drills and things where you really kind of slow things down, you can just maintain a nice – head and body position because you've got all the air you need and you can really break down the various components of the stroke um you know with with the snorkel and then you know we we, you talked a little bit earlier about you know rhythm and a stroke but when you don't have to turn your head you know whether you're when you're swimming whether you're shoulder driven or hip driven swimmer you can find a rhythm um especially if you've fortunate enough to swim in Australia where you guys have 50 meter pools about every two blocks, it seems, Um, (laughs) you know, you, you can just, you can just get into a rhythm, you know, and uh, I don't know about you, but I'm sure a lot of athletes have been in a pool at at a time and they're like, oh, darn the walls here. I was just kind of finding my rhythm, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and so I think a snorkel is a really valuable tool um, for, for teaching rhythm um, and keeping the head quiet and still, you know, I mean, the head doesn't really need to move a lot unless, you know, unless you're breathing and turning to the side when you don't have a snorkel in the head should stay relatively in line with the spine, pretty neutral, not wandering around a whole lot. Um, you know, there's different discussions Well, how much, you know, how are you looking straight at the bottom? Or are you looking, you know, five degrees, 10 degrees forward, you know, whatever. I think that's a, becomes more of a personal preference as long as it's not compromising your shoulder range of motion and, or, you know, pushing the hips down. But, um, I think snorkel training is, is fabulous. Um, you know, uh, I like the snorkel training with the band too. just snorkel in the band, um, in going back to stroke turnover. I mean, you put an athlete with a snorkel on in a band and just have them do 25 meter reps. And they, they, if they don't get the turnover up, it's, it's game over pretty quick. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's, uh, the, those two are a great combination, um, for sure. But, uh, I think the slowing down. I, I like the snorkel for really actually going slow, um, slowing things down. It, it's surprising how hard it is for athletes to hold a good body line when they're actually moving slower. Um, they've really got to have some good body awareness, you know, from from top to bottom. Otherwise, they they just can't do it. Um, I've had athletes do a set recently. I've been doing stuff right. I challenge them to see how slow they can go across a you know a twenty five yard pool here, and I've had some athletes go across twenty five yards and swimming and taking over a minute, but they're just moving really 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 s- slowly and just having to really be connected. Um, it's a neat little drill. You have them do a couple twenty fives like that, and take off and swim a twenty five afterwards. And um, the analogy I've gotten is that they'll tell me they feel like they've got a girdle on across their torso because now. They become so aware of all the musculature through the core and the torso area that um, when they go to swim, they feel really connected. So Mm. uh, I don't know how much slow movement work you do with your athletes, um, but, you know, it might have, there might be some takeaways for some people that might be their aha moment.
1: Yeah, that's, that's great. And as you mentioned, the feeling, you know, uh, awareness of the, of the body position and, and being connected through the core, that's you, one thing I really like about watching watching really good swimmers is their control through the whole line of the body. It's just a really nice thing to watch. You can see the head, the hips and the heels all at the surface and great control through the, the core and the trunk. And when we do some basic kicking drills on the front, like a, a Superman kick, uh, the 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 best swimmers have got that control through there. Whereas um, with the slow swimmers, there's usually a bit of a bit too much of an arch through the back. Uh, the head looks forward, and and there's uh, a bit of uh, there's not that long line through the neck. So one of the things that we like to work with our athletes on is, in order to have that connection through the whole body, you need to switch on your posture, and to do that, you need to have long neck. And you're sort of tucking that that chin in. So we, we want we want a long line from the, the the neck to the spine, and keeping the lower back relatively flat. We don't want a really big arch to it, and that comes from that control through the through the girdle. And that's a really good exercise to, to get them to practice. That is slow swimming because if you don't have that switched on, the legs are, are just going to sink. Um, so that's yeah, that's a, That's an excellent one. And um, you, you wrote another article about the the ABCs of optimal health and, and training. And I think this is a really good, simple way just to think about life and, and sport in general. So can you uh, explain what the ABCs of optimal health and training are?
0: Yeah, sure. It's, um, I believe in that article, I referenced it is as a is for adequate sleep, B for balanced nutrition and C for consistent uh, exercise, you know, um, you know, sleep. Oh my gosh. It seems, as uh, we get so wound up sometimes it's that that's a big one you know for whether you're an athlete or not you know sleep is uh so many things happen when we're at rest um oftentimes you know if we if our sleep isn't consistent it's it's it can really compromise you know your your sport you know your work uh relationships you know just you know that that's just paramount, you know. It'd be great if we could all live where we could not have to set an alarm to get up in the morning and let our bodies wake us up, you know. So I guess if you if one ever has a moment to 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 do that, just do a little experiment, you know. Like if it's possible, set up some time where you don't have any morning commitments and then just allow your body to wake when it normally wakes. You know, generally you'll, your body will give the, yourself the amount of sleep you need. You know, it's tough though. You know, with the multi-sport world sometimes we're really chasing time in our days and it, it's um, you know, I'll tell my athletes sometimes like hey you know shorten the workout if you if you're're you're getting behind in your sleep you're, you're gonna get more from being a little more rested than you are from you know digging yourself into that hole um, so sleep's a biggie for sure you know balanced nutrition um, you know pretty much uh, yeah there's so many different ways one can choose to eat, you know, that's why I think be for balance, you know, find, find your, your, your comfort foods, the ones that, um, you know, you know, that are going to nourish you well. And there's an old saying like 80, 20 rule, if you can eat well, you know, well, meaning, you know, minimizing the junk and the processed stuff 80% of the time, then 20% of the time you got a little bit of latitude, um, kind of thing. But you know, just try to find the balance um but it nutrition's so personal um but the balance I think the balance is key, and then see for consistency and exercise you know, just do something it doesn't have to be hard, doesn't have to be long just but our bodies i think our bodies generally enjoy moving um I don't know about you, but if I go a couple of days where I've had little to no activity um I'm not as happy as I would like to be um <laughs> You know, and sometimes it's just you know clearing your head and getting out for a walk um, and getting out in nature. But you know, consistency and and I think the consistency and exercise. The word consistency obviously applies to nutrition and the sleep. Just trying to have some some consistency and, and balance. Um, you know, it's it's a huge help. And then everything else kind of we can do, if we could just do those three things. Think about it. If we if a society as a culture if we all bought into adequate sleep, some balanced nutrition and consistent exercise that'd be a pretty happy place to be I, i'd like to be part of that culture
1: oh absolutely i i think as well if one of those things starts to slip a lot of times the other aspects of it can slip too so with the ABCs—I mean, adequate sleep balanced nutrition consistent exercise and movement i, I mean i i've got a uh a nine week old baby at the moment so for the last few weeks probably for the first four or five weeks he he was born, my sleep was out the window. And so I was really tired. As a result, I started eating a lot poorer just to kind of fill the fill the tiredness void and to try and get myself up and going. And I just didn't feel like exercising as a result of both of those. So when when one starts to go, the other two can, can slip. So I think when it's all happening, you start to feel really good. And I've found that the last couple of weeks now, he's sleeping better and uh, I'm I'm eating so much better, and I'm being I'm exercising once or twice a day again, and just so much happier as a result of it. So it's um such a good simple approach to things. But I think if every, you know, if everyone could could get those three things going, I think the overall uh, happiness of uh, of the population would definitely increase.
0: Yeah, I'm all in favor of that. For those in the corporate world, having a a two-hour lunch and sneaking either exercise or a power nap.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah,
0: I love naps. Oh my gosh, you know, with you know, being a coach, you get it. Some mornings you're just you're on the deck early, and uh, you know, grabbing a power nap, you know, ten or fifteen minutes, a little, you know, a little lie down. Even if you can't, you know, fall asleep, um, you know, just taking a moment just to have a little check out. Sometimes later in the day, it's a huge help, a huge reset. You just kind of get up and let's. You're ready to to get going with the next bit. Um, and I, I've just done some reading recently on some different types of sleep. I think there was monophasic and different where they were studying people that sleep, you know, two and three times a day and I've never big chunks, but they routinely get blocks set out. So I don't know, there might be, there might be some more time, time to look into researching sleep patterns, you know, and what works. I, I obviously don't know how people do it. They maybe have flip schedules and work
1: nights. That would just drive me bonkers. Mm, oh, that'd be that'd be very tough. Now, oh. I, I think what the what the body, you know, if the body's telling you you're tired, you need a, a nap. Then well, I know personally, before you know, in probably the last twelve months, I've changed it. If I'm tired, I'll I'll try and have a nap if I can can fit that in, and um, I've got nothing pressing. But before that, it was replace it with a, a coffee or go and find something. <laughs> sugary and unhealthy to eat to get the blood sugar levels back up and you know, get me awake and feeling good. So I think, you know, obviously the healthier choice is take a 15-minute nap and you'll feel yeah. a million times better after that uh, as opposed to having that high and low of a, uh, of a coffee or a sugary treat. Right. I, I would agree with that 100%. And uh, for people listening, where can they find out more about your coaching services and uh, where can they find you online through social media? Yeah,
0: right. Um, so uh, my website, uh, Coach Um I've got, uh, I, I'm getting progressive. I've got an Instagram account now. So it's uh, <laughs> train, train smart, race fast um, on Instagram. Uh, my Twitter handle is, uh, I believe was my t- I I, can't, I think it's just Eric Nielsen because train smart race fast was one letter too long so my Twitter handle is just Eric Nielsen and uh, Facebook page would be train smart race fast um, for those that are in the the Facebook um, world so those would be the three social media platforms plus the the website um, and and then and then my blog is on the website so I you know I try to put up things from time to time I I think are helpful and useful for people and it's still a work in progress. I mean, I've been coaching 25 years swimmers and, and, and then seguing into multi-sport athlete coaching. And it's, um, I'm still learning. I've, I've been so fortunate. I'm sure you, as of you to have some mentors in the, the various sports and it's just, uh, yeah, I, I hope I never stop learning. It's, uh, it, there's, there's just, there's just so many different ways to get it done out there. And, we touched on earlier really, is finding that right combination and recipe for that, for each athlete, you know, that, that's, that's what's going to help them reach their goals. You know, what works for one might work for another, but there's some other pieces, you know, we have to try to implement and, uh, but yeah, and I'm, I'm based here in Colorado in the USA, uh, t- uh town of Loveland, which is maybe oh, 45 minutes from Denver or the Boulder area for those that might be familiar with, uh, Colorado geography. I um, had spent a number of years in on the big island of Hawaii in Kona, right in Ironman uh, headquarters there, which was just fabulous. And then before that in San Diego. So I was really fortunate to live in some areas where there was a good depth of uh, athletic and athleticism and, and just a lot of knowledgeable people. So, so grateful for the, the coaches I've mentored uh, that have mentored me, but also all the athletes I've had a chance to to touch over the years that really has been
1: my ongoing continuing education for sure well you've been right in the the main hubs of triathlon there in yeah. colorado and kona and uh up in san diego there so that's uh that's awesome and as you were saying it's i mean it's it's such a rabbit hole with learning about triathlon and swimming there's just so much information so the you know the more you do Learn the more you realise you don't know, and that's a, that's a good thing. I think, yeah, it's just uh, you know, when I first started coaching, I probably thought I knew a lot more than I actually did know, and <laughs> and now eleven years into it, I look back and go, oh my god, I can't believe, um, like I I just can't believe there's there's so much to it. So it's uh, it, but that's what makes it fun is is that continual development, continual learning, because without that progress, that's when things start to to get a bit boring so um thank you so much for being on the podcast i've uh, really enjoyed chatting to you and yeah uh, I'll, I'll provide those links on our website at com. so for anyone who's who's uh looking for eric's website i, I highly recommend looking at uh, at the blog post there's some really good articles especially on uh on swimming there so um eric thanks so much for being on the podcast
0: yeah my, my pleasure and and one final note i think you know for those listening it's um, and particularly the beginner athlete, you know, one of the best ways a coach can help you is um, the coach can be kind of your filter with, like you mentioned, the rabbit hole and so much information out there that a coach can really help kind of maybe refine all the information that a new athlete is getting and kind of you know maybe make it a little more understandable for for the new athlete in particular. I think that's one way coaches really help the beginner a lot is just kind of. Yeah, you know, maybe narrow their scope of so much that they're getting bombarded with.
1: Oh yeah, it's especially with with triathlon. I mean, there's you're yeah. learning about three sports, and if you, if you <laughs> right. don't have a background in any of them, it's yeah. just oh my god, what do I actually what's actually important here? And that's something I found when I started last year yeah. with triathlons. I knew swimming that was fine, but then even just learning about the bike and riding and and everything. I thought, oh my gosh, it's just so much to to consider. Yes. And then on race day, you nutrition and you got to bring your bike pump and all this sort of stuff. It was, I made a a checklist of of everything, and and still then I missed out on a lot of things. So uh, yeah, a coach a coach will help you understand what what do you really need to know about compared to the mm-hmm. thousand of other things to to consider. <laughs> For sure. Are, are you going
0: to find your way up to the seventy point three worlds? Is it up in Malulaba, I think.
1: Yeah, that's this uh, Sunday, actually. So yeah. I'm uh, I'm down in Melbourne, which is about an hour and a half, two hour flight from there. So oh, right. um, I won't be won't be going up, uh, but I've got uh, a few friends who are racing and that sort of thing. So I'm going to be tracking them closely. Have you um uh? Have you got people there racing that you know?
0: Yeah, we've got uh, three people here. That swim in, in one of the masters groups that are heading over or that sure they're there now racing. So they're looking forward to it. Yeah, very much so.
1: Yeah. Awesome. It'd be, be a great thing to go and watch. It's a beautiful part of the country up there, especially near Noosa, which is just about half an hour, oh. 45 minutes North. Um, yeah. That's, that's
0: just, so I spent a couple of weeks there.
1: Oh wow, geez. Back in,
0: Oh, five, six years ago. Yeah. Just beautiful up that way. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. Just a, a, such a special <laughs> part of the, uh, the world i was actually looking at uh, on one of our real estate websites here in australia i was like oh, how much would it cost to actually live up there in noosa because it's just especially over our winter it's it's a good temperature there's surf there good places to swim and just really something special so um yeah. i can't see that happening in the next 12 months but it's nice to dream anyway for sure hey <laughs> thanks
0: so much for having me on the show i really appreciate it and
1: let me know if I could be a resource in the future for anything. Fantastic. Well, do. thanks for that, Eric. Appreciate yeah. it. Cheers.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Effortless Swimming Podcast. To get transcriptions, bonus videos, and to be the first to hear about new episodes, go to swimmingpodcast.com.